We need folks from all walks of life so we understand it. Because I will assure you that I, had I not been the Assistant Secretary of Commerce and had I not been, you know, empowered by men like Mickey Leland and Ron Brown and others who said, you know, stand up for what's right no matter what the cost. If I hadn't had that kind of training and I hadn't had my background, the digital buy would have been an afterthought. My name is Linda Laurel, and I'm asking you to have the courage to listen with an open mind to all of our voices, because our voices matter. I want to take a moment to thank BMW of West Houston for sponsoring this episode of our Voices Matter podcast. BMW, of course, is known as the ultimate driving machine because of its precision and power. As someone who has driven a BMW for many years now, I can attest to that firsthand. But I think what's even more important, especially about this particular BMW dealership, is that it understands the power and the impact of giving back to its community. BMW of West Houston is known for its support of countless local charities, and that is important to us here at Our Voices Matter podcast. So if you choose to do business with BMW of West Houston, not only will you be getting the stellar first-class service that the dealership is known for, but you can also rest assured that you are doing business with a dealership that truly cares about and gives back to its community. Hey, everybody, it's Linda Laurel, and this is Our Voices Matter podcast. Chances are you have heard the term digital divide. My guest today is the man who coined that phrase. His name is Larry Irving, and he is president of the Irving Group. That's a consulting firm to international telecommunications, media, and technology companies. Now, when Larry coined that now famous phrase, he was Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Communications and Information in the Clinton administration. He was a principal advisor to the president, the vice president, and the secretary of commerce. In 2019, he was elected to the Internet Hall of Fame for his pioneering efforts identifying the digital divide and advocating for more equitable access to the Internet. He was recently named as the new chairman of the board of PBS. We talk about his backstory and what led him to the work that he does today at the intersection of technology and media. And, of course, how it's playing a role as the war in Ukraine and the refugee crisis continue to unfold. It's a very important conversation, I believe, and I feel privileged to share it with you. So let's get to it. Larry Irving, it is such a pleasure to finally have an opportunity to talk with you. Welcome to Our Voices Matter podcast. It's completely my honor. Thank you sir, very much for inviting me. Well, you know, we have Stanford in in uh, in common, but we don't really know each other. And when I saw that you had just been appointed to the chairman of the board of PBS, I thought, you know, I got to reach out to him because I want to talk about that. But before we get there, I want you to give our audience a little bit of your backstory. I know that you grew up in in Brooklyn. Um, how did you get from public housing in Brooklyn to Stanford Northwestern and beyond. Where did it um, start? It, it started in Brooklyn. My, my parents were blue collar, um, working class. My dad had an eighth grade education. My mom had a couple of years of college. She was a social worker. 
He was a, um, a electrician with Con Edison, union guy. Uh, they broke up before I remember. Um, and like many families, when the civil service jobs happened, you move from Brooklyn to Queens. So I actually grew up with a backyard and a garage and a, and a, and a front yard. Um, just, you know, your, your typical aspirational black family. Um, and, and in my family, there's kind of a hope that you'd go to college, maybe an expectation to go to college. But college was any college. College would have been Queens College or a state university in New York was what kids like me at a big public high school should aspire to. Um, and I got very lucky. A um, guidance counselor, uh, Mrs. Hamilton, my junior or senior year, took a look at my grades, which were okay, and took a look at my board scores, which were very good, and said, you know, in the 1970s, schools are looking for kids like you. Um, and she was the one who suggested I apply to Northwestern. Um, I thought I was an athlete. I really wasn't, but I wanted to be one. I said, look, it's a Big Ten school. If you're athletic enough, you can play football there, but you probably won't. Um, but they'll, you know, pay for you to go to college even if you don't have, a, uh, if you're not a football player or a basketball player. Um, I never spent a dime of tuition at Northwestern or Stanford uh, because my family was, while blue collar was a pretty poor blue collar. Um, and if not for Mrs. Hamilton, my life's very different. I did get into Northwestern. They did give me a scholarship. I met my wife at Northwestern. I, you know, I'm now a trustee at Northwestern. None of that happened except for one black woman who looks at this black kid and sees that he's being steered um, in directions that weren't necessarily optimizing his talent. Um, and then from Northwestern, I did well there. Again, grades were good. Board scores were better. Um, I, you know, it's very weird um, that for a lot of black folks, the bar uh, of board scores for me, the um, um, exit ramp, um, the on-ramp for me were my board scores because I was never a studious student. I was always involved in other activities. But really good board scores got me into Northwestern and Stanford. Um, Stanford Law School uh, became president of my class, um, had no idea what I wanted to do, um, thought I'd do a whole bunch of things, but decided uh, my, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, um, and I were looking to, to, to settle together in Washington, D.C., and that's where I started my legal career. And it's funny, again, it's, 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 um, a dean at, at Stanford Law School, a black dean, Milton Wiggins, was really helpful along with another dean in steering me in to go to Stanford. I, that was my first choice, but family pressure. I got into Harvard. I got into nine other schools and a lot of, you should go to Harvard, should go to Harvard. And I'm like, I, I'm from the East Coast. I've been in the Midwest. Stanford's a great school. It wasn't what it is today in the seventies in terms of, you know, it was a top, Five law school, it wasn't a top two or three law school, maybe. But I thought for me, being in a smaller place that was of my own choosing would be a great experience. And, and I'm absolutely right. I know if I'd gone to North, uh, to Harvard or Yale, I never would have been number one in my class. I wouldn't have been, I was never number one. I never would have been elected president of my class. By being in a smaller place where I knew all my classmates and being president of a law school class, having the um, imprimatur of, of, what, of leadership from your um, law school classmates, that makes a huge difference. But the other thing about both Northwestern and Stanford, the quality of people that I met coming through those institutions who are still part of my life today. And when I talk to young students today, when I'm recruiting for Northwestern or recruiting for Stanford, I tell them, it's not just about the education you're going to get from the professors. It's not just about the physical locale, physical locale. It's the relationships that you make along the way, some of which you keep. And, and, and let me give you one story that um, I think exemplify that. Okay. I'd worked in Chicago at a law firm after my first summer. I got a job offer. I worked in New York in a Wall Street firm after my second summer. I got a job offer. I wasn't going back to Chicago. It was too cold. My <laughs> wife wasn't, my then girlfriend, my now wife wasn't going back to New York. It's too big. She's a girl from Pittsburgh, woman from Pittsburgh. Didn't know people in New York, didn't want to go from Evanston to New York. 
So I was talking to a classmate of mine about, I wanted, you know, we were thinking about maybe Washington as a place. As it turned out, his name is Riley Bechtel. He's uh, the ex-CEO of Bechtel Corporation. He was then the scion, you know, the presumptive heir of Bechtel. Because he's in my small group, he said, you know, the firm I clicked at last summer, um, I know the guys there. Um, they do a lot of work for my, fam my family's uh, company. Let me give them a call. There's no way that I'm meeting with, the, you know, managing the hiring partner two weeks later, um, if not for having a relationship with a Riley Bechtel. All when you go to a small, sorry, yeah. I said it's, it's all about, about relationships. relationships. Yeah. And so many of our young black students and young Latino students and, and women don't, you know, don't have this sense of, you know, we're the, we're, we, we're the outsiders. We don't have those networks growing up. You know, for Riley, that's what you do. You know, as a black, like, you know, I, I, who, who am I going to call? Um, as a black working class kid, and, and I always tell people, you know, knowing the Riley Bechtels of your life, haven't talked to Riley in 20 or 30 years probably, but that one phone call that he was willing to make for his then classmate changed my life, and those are the relationships that matter. And I believe if I called you know, Riley now, I know he's had some illnesses. We did talk when I was an assistant secretary of commerce, but I think if I called him now, he'd remember me, He would, you know, and I needed a favor. I think it would be there. Those are the relationships that matter. That's why you go to those kinds of institutions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Gosh, so many lessons in, in everything you just talked about. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the beginning of your, your career as you moved forward. I know that at one point you were legislative director and counsel for Congressman Mickey Leland, who the, the was sainted so Mickey Leland. Yes. Mickey was, Mickey, Mickey was one of those, you know, I was reading or, oh, I know, I, there was a woman named Barbara Friedman in Houston who was a very close friend of Mickey's who was going to do a documentary on Mickey. And I, know somehow, Barbara. I know Barbara Friedman. Barbara had started fundraising to do a documentary on Mickey. And if you have time, there's like on you, if you Google it, you'll find a two and a half, three minute um, trailer that I guess she was using as a fundraising piece to do this um, uh, documentary on, on Mickey. And the joy in that man's life. He was the first uh, person I ever heard call himself uh, a citizen of the world. Um, mm. You know, I'm looking at this, uh, the refugee pri uh, crisis in, 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 in uh, hung uh, Ukraine right now. And I, Mickey, st while I was with Mickey, he started the House Select Committee on Hunger. We are the world was part of what he was doing. Um, and I know if he was alive, you know, we'd be doing something huge on this planet right now about the refugee. You know, if t two to four million people have lost their home, looking at this, looking at the, uh, the footage, you know that most of those people are never going home again because there's no home to go to. Warsaw right. announced this morning that they don't have enough room to um, uh, house all the people. And, and what you learn from a, a person like Mickey is, okay, that's happening. Let's fix that. Let's let's start right now. He'd be on the phone. He'd be working on what are we going to do to make sure these people aren't hungry. In, in addition to that, you know, the Ukraine we don't think about is is the breadbasket of the planet. Um, you know, folks in Egypt, folks in Africa, twenty to thirty percent of all the wheat on the planet comes from the Ukraine. What are folks going to do as prices go up? People already on subsistence um, uh, income levels. Twenty or thirty percent increase in wheat doesn't mean much of us on this podcast, but it does mean something. Somebody's on a subsistence level sure, in the Middle sure. East or in Africa. Those so, kinds of could have more hunger. So let's talk about. I'm so glad you brought up Ukraine because I I really did want to talk about that, um, mm -hmm. especially as it relates to. Technology. Now, you're a technology mm -hmm. strategist. You're uh -huh. the guy that coined the digital divide, and we're going to talk about that. Yep. Um, so I was struck by news reports that say 
when the uh, refugees are are moving into other countries, and of course they're being fed and clothed and housed and all of those things, but one of the first things that they are giving people when they get to safety is a SIM card. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to the power of technology and why it's so important for them to have that connectivity through their cell phones. So talk to me about, about that within the context of your role in, 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 in bringing, you know, I guess in, in bridging that digital divide, if you will, and you see where we are today in the world. Well, you know, one of the things we have to remember is for all the work that's been done on digital divide, there are still about 3 billion people out of the 7 billion who don't have access to the internet. Um, but about 5 billion people do have ac- access to some form of mobile device. Let's contrast that. I left the government in 1999. When I left the government, half the people in the plan... And, and tell had, people again what you were doing in the government in the Clinton administration, just so that they remember. So, so in the Clinton administration, I was an assistant secretary of commerce, and I was a de facto internet policy advisor for Bill Clinton and Al Gore and three secretaries of commerce. So I really had... When, when there were 15 million people on the internet, my job was to help grow that and to help develop policies, you know, paint the yellow lines. That, you know, We called it the information superhighway. I was the guy painting the yellow lines and the street signs for the information supply in the early 1990s. During my tenure in Commerce Department, we went from about 15 million people on the internet to pretty close to a billion people on the internet by the time I left. Um, and now we're at about four and a half billion people on the internet in the 20 years since. But half the world had never used a telephone in 1999. Half the world in 1990 lived, 1999 lived two or more hours from the nearest telephone. It was a combination of the internet and the explosion in mobile technology that all of a sudden everybody on the planet now has access to information, to family, to government communications, to healthcare advice, to educational resources that they'd never had in the history of the world. And the thing about the internet slash mobile revolution is that it happened pretty much around the world at the same time. The industrial revolution didn't happen that way. The automobile revolution didn't happen that way. The you know airplanes didn't happen around the world that way. But the wonderful thing about these telephones and, and the internet is almost all of us got introduced to those technologies between 1990 and 2020 uh, just has never happened before. Now, if you're a person from Ukraine, you can call for needed goods. You can get healthcare information. You can tell people who love you that you're there. You can figure out what uh, you can use it to get access to government resources. It is maybe the critical tool and to have been part of the revolution that helped people understand how important communications are and to more importantly, to bring people who historically have been, you know, on the other side of of of, of that of, of any new revolution, to the revolution as it's happening, that's so powerful. But I know I was I was watching I was reading Twitter this morning and I was talking to a friend who said um, um, we were messaging back and forth and she has a friend in Ukraine and she said I just on on you know, because I need to know I um, texted my friend to see if she's all right and she said I'm eating a croissant. And, um, you know, and he said, you know, that gave her such joy that it, it's a little thing like that in the middle of a war where people are dying to know that a friend had enough safety that she was somewhere eating a croissant. That's what these phones mean. You know, I, I, if I have one like searing, searing memory of this, it's a friend in, in America reaching out to a friend in Ukraine, her friend in Ukraine, and finding out that friend was eating a croissant this morning during this war. That's what these technologies allow us to know. I was looking at a couple of the speeches that you've given through the years as I was preparing for this interview today. And in a couple of them, you talk about 
using mobile devices, sensors, and data analytics. All three of them together, you say that's when the magic happens. What do you mean by that? I mean that when you, you – know, we always – we talk about the um, the measured life, that we, you know, we now have the ability to know how we feel and let, let our doctors know. We have uh, the ability to – um, connect in instantaneous, you know, instantaneously. Give you an example. My stepdad, when he was alive, had diabetes, um, and it was fairly bad. Historically, we would not have known when he was having an episode because it was measured. Today, we can, on a daily basis, and, and in, our, in our community, black communities, diabetes runs rampant. In Native American communities, diabetes runs rampant. We can use metrics. We can use mobile technologies so that a doctor on an almost daily basis can monitor what's happening to somebody who's a diabetic. We can do the same thing. You know, we both had experience with folks who um, uh, have dementia. We, on a daily basis, we can follow how they're doing and what they're doing. Um, as I've gotten older, I have um, hypertension that's uh, um, measured by, um, uh, kept in check by medication. But my doctor historically could not have known on a daily basis. Today, on a daily basis, a healthcare provider can, can monitor. We can do so many things using these technologies, using analytics. I can, you should be in three to five to seven years be able to predict when somebody's going to have a diabetic problem, when somebody's going to have a hypertensive issue, when somebody needs to come in and see their doctor because of some other medical issue. Merlin couldn't have come up with that kind of um, uh, uh, alchemy back in, 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 in medieval days. We can do things now to prolong life, to make life better, to make life more enjoyable by using these tools that we have. And that's always what I've been wanting to do, what I've always wanted to do. When I look at the community I come from, we disproportionately work longer for less pay and as a result have worse health outcomes. And then the healthcare system doesn't work for us as well. And in addition to that, you know, when you read about something like Serena Williams almost dying um, after having her child because the doctors didn't believe the amount of pain she was in, and when you read stories that we as black people get different treatment, there's an assumption that our pain tolerances are higher. Measuring by using um, um, metrics, by using these types of technologies, we can make sure that the treatment that a poor black woman gets when she has a child, not notwithstanding a rich black woman like Serena Williams, but a poor black woman or a poor Native mm -hmm. American or a poor Hispanic mm -hmm. woman gets the mm -hmm. same level of treatment and is monitored the same way as the richest woman living in River Oaks gets. Those are the kinds of tools and technologies. That's when I say the magic happens. We can make life so much better by using the tools we have, but we can also take some of the, the bias out. If we have young, smart people who are looking for bias um, in these algorithms, because one of the things that we've noticed is, I remember one example, and I'll give an example. In hiring, uh, one major tech company wanted to use algorithms to hire. And they saw at the end of the process that what they were getting, they wanted to say, how do we hire successfully? And at the end of their process, they found out that all the candidates that they were approving to be interviewed were white males. And the reason, because the metrics for success historically in that company had always been white males. So they measured new folks coming in the same way they measured the old folks but already had. what's the answer to that? How do, you, how do we fix that? How do we, we break that bias? You have to have people of color. You have to have women. You have to have people of different socioeconomic and cultural um, um, origins involved in the process of creating the algorithms. And unfortunately, you know, part of that starts with STEM. We don't, you know, we're not graduating as many black, Latino, women, um, STEM practitioners as we should and could, but we will be. Um, you know, increasingly we're seeing that. And 
and and that's the the, the magic the key to that to that that's not magic that's just do the hard work go out and find some folks stanford harvard yale northwestern mit caltech howard morehouse spellman tougaloo are all graduating mm -hmm. smart young black people mm -hmm. hispanic serving institutions are you know a lot of smart folks you may have to train them a little bit more they may not have had the um um the, the foundational um, studies in high schools because of the inequities in our high school system, but there are mm -hmm. a lot of smart people of color. And one of the things that I keep reminding my friends in tech, because I still do a lot in tech, this year, you're going to have several million people turn 18. 52% of those people are black, brown, Asian, or Native American. I would say, and I'm not the only one who believes this, and I don't typically make, you know, overt political statements on this show, but I do believe that that is one of the reasons why our state legislature has changed our voting laws. And I can tell you firsthand, it was a nightmare voting in the primary. I mm -hmm. mean, for me, I, I have my own story. There are tons of stories out there. It's a mess. Well, it, it, when you it, see them, but it's but it's a purposeful mess. It was done this way. It, they're trying to reduce the number of young people, yes. black people, Latinos, Native Americans, yes. Asians, um, right. and women who vote because right. they disproportionately vote in a way that the existing power structure doesn't like. Yeah, we're gonna have you know. I'm one of, you know, when I look at the Supreme Court Constitution, and I'm not going to be overtly pro, but I'm a lawyer. When I look at the Constitution of the Supreme Court, I do worry about what the next four to five to 10 to 20 years looks like, because it seems very much like 1876, um, the post-Reconstruction period. From 1865 to 1876, there was this huge um, increase in civil rights for blacks and browns. From 1876 to 1899, um, you saw a retrenchment that led to Jim Crow that lasted a century. So right. or, or, uh, half of the last century. So we mm -hmm. do have to be wary of that. Um, and voting is a fundamental right. Um, the only, you know, if you want a representational government, and you, and you have people say, we're trying to protect against fraud. And then you ask them, well, where is the fraud? And they can't show you an example of fraud. Or the examples they're showing you are of the chief of staff of the president of the United States saying he lives in a trailer that he's never actually visited. Forget what the, court, forget what the courts have said, right? Forget mm -hmm. what the courts have mm -hmm. said, that there was no fraud. Right. 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 And so, you, you, you know, obviously are, are well versed in this. You're on the are you still on the board of the Texas Tribune? I am still on the board of the Texas Tribune. Um, okay. I, you so, know, that, so that goes back to Mickey. Well versed in what's going on here in Texas then. I, I read the Texas Tribune, you know, every day. Um, I, I spend a significant amount of time on the Texas Tribune's website. And every day I watch PBS NewsHour and see what we're reporting on the PBS NewsHour. And one of the things that I, and, and you know, you're, we, we talked earlier, the, the brief conversation we had earlier today, um, you're a storyteller. And I, I'm not a storyteller by nature. But I love supporting storytellers. I think we need platforms where great objective storytellers and non-objective storytellers, but with the Tribune and PBS in particular, there's a need for objectivity, news that's not slanted, that most of the people listening to this podcast, most people in this country can make up their own mind if you give them the straight skinny. So I want to support institutions like the Texas Tribune, like PBS, that provide the story unadulterated, without a whole bunch of editorializing around it. Here are the facts, ma'am, sir. 
You make up your mind as to what you want to think of that. Um, no one does it better than Evan Smith in the Texas Tribune, except maybe um, um, public broadcasting and Judy. <laughs> so let, let's talk about that because you're a fairly new chair of the board of PBS. So tell tell our audience, you know, what's going on at PBS, what they can expect in the future, and how I'm, I'm curious about how you're using your technology background. Um, as you're as you're moving forward in this role as the chairman of the board of PBS. Well, I want to be careful because I, I want to get ahead of myself. I haven't had my first meeting yet as chair. I was I was elected <laughs> okay. in December, uh, but I haven't actually sat down with the other 26 board members. Um, I was on the board for 10 years um, before and I, I stepped off for two years and I came back. Um, PBS to me is, is a national treasure. It's yes. a national treasure because it is, yes. it is the single it is. most trusted public institution in a country in which most public institutions from Congress to the courts to, you know, forest service, everybody's, we've seen the numbers decline. We're still trusted. And to me, that's, you know, when I talk to my wife, who I've, I, my wife and I've been together for 47 years, either as a couple or, or married. Oh, and I talk to my wife, she's always like, oh, so all you can do is screw this up, right? It's like, no, all I, what I can, what <laughs> I can do is, well, you know, nobody knows you as well as your spouse. Um, but what we hope to do is, is, keep it as, as good as it is, as trusted as, and maybe make it a little bit better. And to your point with regard to digital technology, I have nieces and nephews who have never, um, the, the, the concept of coming home at eight or nine o'clock to watch friends or to, you know, or, um, um, what's, uh, cheers or, you know, getting home at seven o'clock on Sunday night to watch 60 minutes. Like, why would you do that? You just watch it later or you do the art. I mean, yeah. so it's a whole new concept of, and how do we at PBS using PBS digital, how do we use technology to expand our audience, to reach more people. I know that within, within the, across the community of PBS, we believe that great storytellers need somewhere to tell those stories. And that there are a lot of untold American stories, whether you're black or you're brown or you're aged or you're Native American or you're rural American. When I was on the board of Independent Television Service, ITBS, which they, we run, they ran the thread of, um, uh, the Independent Lens series, which runs on most uh, stations on Tuesday nights, but Independent Lens was, I was on their board. And when I first joined the board, I have a good friend, I had at the time, I had a good friend, he's still a congressman named Hal Rogers. Hal Rogers is the congressman from the poorest Republican district in the country. It's coal mining um, country that's basically been hollowed out. And he was on the Appropriations Committee in Congress. And I would go see him, a proudly member of Independent Lens. And I was talking to one of his staffers. And his staffer says, you know, Larry, I love a lot of what I see in Independent Lens. But one of the things you got to remember, there are a lot of folks who don't live on the two coasts, who don't live around the Great Lakes, who also have stories to tell. How often do we see a story out of Temple, Texas? How often do we see a story out of Kansas? How often do we see a story out of Idaho? And so what I look at diversity in all of its forms, that every person in America is a taxpayer. They all care about this institution. All of those stories need to be told. We want more black stories. We want more stories by women. We want more stories by Latinos. But I also want more rural stories. Because I honestly, I've never believed that you can dislike or, or and particularly can't hate a person if you know their stories. It's what you do so well with your podcast, that if I know your story, if I understand who you are as a human being, if I get what matters to you, if I know how you love your mom and how you think about your kids and what your grandma taught you, I can't hate you. Um, I can't even dislike you. And so I, public broadcasting to me is a place where we can tell all of those stories. We have the time. We have the talent. We have the inclination to bring this nation together. And at a time when there's so many processes pulling us apart... My goal is to use technology, to use the incredible talent of the people at public broadcasting brings together. And there's one other thing. I'm, 
just slightly older than the generation of children who grew up on public broadcasting. But I've watched several generations of children grow up on PBS Kids. And there really isn't a more wholesome, non-commercial place for your kid to learn some values, to um, learn about the world, learn about themselves, expand their minds, um, and not be you know buffeted by somebody trying to sell them a toy or unboxing commercials or you know program length commercials. Those things, it's important that we treat our children as children, our most precious resource, and give them the skill set. And I do know that you see better educational outcomes from kids who have been exposed to good quality educational programming at an early age. So between PBS trying to take care of our kids and giving them good life lessons and skilling them up, if that's the right term, and, mm -hmm. and public broadcasting, you know, where else do you get arts and nature and compelling stories and civil rights and you know, so many news, so many great things that all of us need and want. And there's something for every American on public broadcast to explore. And using technology, you don't have to, you know, go on the um, the uh, Nature Night block or the um, <laughs> uh, Cultural Night block or whatever. You can do it every day. Every day. Um, and that that's something that matters to me. Make, making these great stories, making these great programs available to every person, not just during primetime hours, but whenever they want to reach them, whenever at they want their convenience, them. wherever yeah. and whenever. And wherever and whenever. So when you talk about the, the power of storytelling and how it's really impossible to hate someone when, when you're up close and personal and you've actually had a chance to talk to them and to hear their story and to see kind of um, you know, where they're coming from, what their perspective is, and, and where the connections might lie. Um, you know, this, this podcast is, as, as we've talked, you know, previously about is just about making sure that we can see each other in someone else's story. Um, and I always ask this question, which is, when have you felt like the other at some point in your life, either personally or professionally? And, you know, what did that make you feel like? And how did you respond? And what did you learn from that? Um, what, what can you share with us when you think back to something that might have been particularly painful or challenging, where you had to, you had to just get through it and then move forward? So it'll it'll take tied together a lot of the things we've already talked about. Um, you know, the hardest thing I've, I've ever had to do professionally. Today, I'm kind of, you know, I'm in the Indiana Hall of Fame because of the digital divide. I'm, I'm, I'm often lauded for having been the guy who came with the digital divide. And yet professionally, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And let me give you a little, a little backstory. So when I was working for our mutual friend, uh, the great Mickey Leland, um, you know, we discovered that in the 1980s, if you were black or brown, you were 20 to 30% less likely to have a telephone in your home than if you were white uh, and affluent. So in my hometown of Brooklyn, literally one out of five households um, in where I grew up didn't have a telephone in the 1980s. In Houston, we saw that in some communities in Houston, black communities, third ward, uh, fourth ward, fifth ward, as many as one in four uh, households in those communities didn't have just your basic telephone. And so Mickey did some things and I worked with him on some things to bring, there's a lifeline telephone service that reduced prices for low-income people and there's a link-up telephone service that it was a time when people, a lot of folks who are younger don't, or don't, don't know this, but you had to give the telephone company $100 to get a phone. And for a lot of black folks in 1982 and 1983, $100 was, that was a big step. You'd have that $100 and you had a past due bill, you couldn't get a telephone. So we did some things to create more opportunity for people to get telephones in, in, in their homes. So fast forward to the internet. And I'm looking at this internet thing created, and you can tell it's going to take off like a rocket ship if you're paying attention. And I realized then that some of us can be left behind. 
that if a household didn't have a telephone in the 1980s, the likelihood they were going to have a computer and an internet line in the 1990s was really slim. So early on in the process, um, we started in 1994-95, I commissioned a study by the Census Bureau. So we started looking at the term, at, at who's connected to the internet, who had a computer in the home, who didn't. And, and then we did it again in 1996, and we did it in 1999. And by 1999, we saw that the gap was widening, that affluent suburban white households and some affluent black households had telephones. But if you were black, if you were brown, if you were English was a second language, if you were a single mom, if you were below a certain income level, if you were below a certain educational level, you were less likely to have the internet. And that's where the term digital divide came up. But the digit, you know, there were so many people, progressive Democrats, um, who weren't from my neighborhood, who weren't from, didn't have my background, who thought that, well, you know, this internet thing will take care of itself and you know, the market will adjust it. And, and I really had to fight. And, and, and the tech industry really hated the term digital divide because they, you know, remember when Cisco and, um, you know, sock puppets on TV and everything about the internet was bright and shiny and new. And as a friend of mine likes to say, everybody wants to chase the shiny, um, and they want to keep it shiny. And folks in Silicon Valley and Silicon Alley in New York kind of thought my digital divide stuff was taking some of the shine off the shiny. And so like, keep that quiet. Don't really talk about this. That's, you know, we, we only want to talk about the good stuff. And I'm like, no, no, because if we don't talk about the good stuff, we're going to be even later taking care of the folks that I also care about. Um, I had a lot of political struggles within the Commerce Department, uh, with some in the White House about using the term digital divide. But here's the good news. The good news was the time Bill Clinton was from the same, you know, side of the tracks in Arkansas that I was from the side of the tracks in Brooklyn. Both of us were on the other side of the tracks. So I, you know, there's some friends who worked directly for the president. When I was getting some pressure from people who above me, but below him, I basically said, um, what's the president think about the term digital divide and maybe getting rid of the term? And, you know, in, in Bill Clinton's inimitable way, according to a friend, he said, why would we ever do that? That digital divide, people love that digital divide. And, you know, and Clinton gets it immediately because viscerally, he's still that boy from hope. He's still that poor boy from hope. And that's why in government, it is so important to have people who come from these communities, who understand what it's like to be poor, who've actually had a welfare cheese, a welfare peanut butter sandwich back in the 1960s, or have gone with their mom with a, uh, you know, with a, a car, but you get looked at that funny in the supermarket in the 2020s. We need folks from all walks of life so we understand it. Because I will assure you that I, had I not been the Assistant Secretary of Commerce and had I not been, you know, empowered by men like Mickey Leland and Ron Brown and others, who said, you know, stand up for what's right no matter what the cost. If I hadn't had that kind of training and I hadn't had my background, the digital divide would have been an afterthought. It's not that people wouldn't have gotten around to it, but it wouldn't have been a priority. And what I wanted to do is take it off the back shelf and put it in the front shelf. This is something we have to focus on. And, you know, if I had a dime for every time the term digital divide has been used since we first popularized it, I would never have to work again in a day, a second in my life. But more importantly, because of the number of times we've been raised, that number of 4 billion, 5 to 5 billion people being on the internet today, that, 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 that family in the Ukraine that had that SIM card, that happened because of those conversations back in the 1990s. And that happened because of conversations with Mickey Leland back in the 1980s. And that happened because of what Mickey Leland saw growing up in the third ward in the 1970s and 60s. And, it, you know, so, it, you know, it's, I'm part of a spectrum of things that had to have happened. I'm proud of what I did, but I'm more proud to be part of that spectrum. Wow, you just brought it all full circle. You tied together all of those threads so beautifully. So as we start to wrap up, what's the next big challenge, do you think, in in the technology sphere? Is it is it <laughs> regulation? 
Is it expansion? I mean, what, what, what's the next big thing? We, it, every technology, whenever we create it, has all these people always talk about all the positive uses to which the technology can be put. And every technology revolution somehow winds up with things that we don't want. Um, um, it it, it kind of goes to its crassest, most commercial form. But then there are always these oases of, you know, if you look at film, you know, black exploitation film or um, um, uh, violent film, or whatever. Um, if you look at television, you know, the crash commercialization of children's television, so much garbage that, you know, parents that want, you know, my, one of my other mentors and, and idols is Newt Minow, who called it a vast wasteland in the 1960s. I think we're going through the same thing with the internet. And I think particularly with regard to social media, um, there, there are times when I see the bullying of, of particularly young girls and their bodies and, and how they look at themselves. When I look at the hate speech, when I look at um, um, Klansmen and neo-Nazis and QAnon um, forming themselves around social media using these technology and tools, that frightens me. But I don't believe that the way that only regulation is the solution. I think we need positive places. Um, as, as, as journalism kind of took a dive and we started seeing the olden groups and others taking out people. We saw it seeing these huge conglomerates buying up and getting rid of local news and reducing what we saw. You saw things like Texas Tribune um, pop up. We, we saw that up in, in Boston, um, the Sun-Times, I mean, in Chicago, the Sun-Times was bought by the um, a public radio station. We started seeing alternative ways of getting information to people. I think we're going to see something like that in social media. I don't know, a person or particularly not a parent or a grandparent who doesn't hate what their children see on Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and so many of the other outlets. I think there's going to be a rationalization where there'll be a nonprofit model where it's something better than what we see now. The public media will spin out. It won't be PBS, I don't believe, but I do believe that the public will coalesce and find some positive places and spaces online. If I had a child, you know, my wife and I are childless, but I do have nieces and nephews, I wouldn't want them spending any amount of time on social media today. And there are actually times like during the election of last year, and I'm like, I've always been so proud of, of getting the internet into more people's hands, and I've never been so disgusted as, in, as you know, looking at what getting that internet has meant. So I think the next big challenge is how do we make, how do we find places, I, don't, I hate the term safe spaces, but how do we find public-oriented spaces? How do we find positive spaces? How do we find spaces that, on, the, on the web that make you feel better, that all of us can come with this kind of a commons that is a uplifting commons? That I think is, is one of the challenges that I'm looking at. Um, I don't know. I know. I love. I, I found a friend from 50 years ago. I went to a junior high school in Queens. I was bused to a junior high school in Queens, and there was this young woman, Gwen um, Schneidkraut, then now Alaker, who was a very, very close friend of mine when I was in junior high school. I had not talked to her in 50 years, and through Facebook, we refound each other and have reconnected, and we'll see each other um, at some point when I'm in LA or she's here. That's the magic of Facebook. But then I see when the comet ping pong when you had a QAnon guy going up there wanting to kill people because of a rumor on he saw on Facebook or, um, that they were pedophiles and killing children in the basement, raping children in the basement. That's the downside. And sorry, Gwen, I didn't mean to connect you with the, the, you know, this crazy guy, but, but I see the ups and the downs. We've got to find a way that, oh, that we can clarify the positive, keep telling to the, the, the uplifting stories, and get rid of some of the noise and the hatred and the violence. And here's the thing. It was a business decision that drives people to QAnon. There are business decisions that drive people to hate groups. There are business decisions driving people to mythologies about COVID. There are business decisions driving people toward these 
um, improper body views. Folks are making money by appealing to our basest side. There's got to be a non-commercial way that we can and, use these technologies uplift. And so I, I, I hear you about, you know, trying to find the more positive uh, content and, and, and finding ways to move people in that direction. You, you mentioned that regulation might be a part of it, but it's certainly not the, the only answer. But where are you on regulation? Do you think that there, there should be some regulation of, of what these companies are allowed to do? And, you know, how, how far can we go? So I would start with that. I would start with that. I trust because I do think that the size of some of these companies and the the power they have to affect the marketplace mm -hmm. is somewhat troubling. But yeah. I also I, I am I am not a reflexive regulator, and the reason is the folks who build these companies and who run these companies know a lot more about the companies than the folks who regulate these companies, and I think that's particularly true right now with the internet. I don't know that we have the. I think you need a, uh, um, you need some fine tuning, and legislation is more of an axe than it is a, a scissors, if that's the right term. Okay. I don't know that we have the skill set right now to know exactly what are the right set, the solution set, and that's the thing that troubles me. Yeah. I do know that we need continual oversight. I do believe we allowed some that the government allowed some mergers that I would not have allowed if I'd been the antitrust czar. Um, I've been a long time as an antitrust lawyer, but I do think that big is not always the best. But I am very leery of saying that if, I, I don't believe anybody has the regulatory or legislative answers right now. And that's the thing that troubles me. And, yeah. But I also think that there is an opportunity for other bodies to create. And the same with the Texas Tribune, uh, you know, created same way that public broadcasting has become more popular. There is a starvation out there. There is a hunger is a better word. People are thirsty for things that are not base and crass and totally commercially driven. And so we need to find more ways to create more of those kinds of opportunities while we're trying to figure out what the right set of legislative and regulatory tools are. I do think that, you know, there is something when you see the success of Twitter and Facebook and TikTok, um, there is something about us as, as, as human beings that makes us want to commune. That doesn't mean that the people who run those companies necessarily have our best interests at heart. And we've got to figure out how to balance having people commune, allowing the size, the scope and scale that allows these things to be ubiquitous global companies without having one or two czars of what we're going to see manipulate us into being our worst selves rather than our best selves. And as individuals, while all of that is going on and all of those challenges are being worked out by the folks who have the opportunity to actually make decisions in that regard, um, we can start to do a better job of communicating with each other on a one-to-one -one human level. And um, that's, you know, that's the space that I'm living in, in terms of what I'm trying to do with the kind of conversations that we're having on the podcast and the, and the conversation that, that we, we had just now. Um, well, thank you so much. I mean, you know, I think we all need hugs after two years of not touching other human beings except the people who live in our house. And whether it's a virtual hug online or a um, actual hug, you know, I went to a couple of board meetings this weekend and it was great to see people that I've talked to maybe every day or several times a week on the telephone to actually be able to give them an, in, you know, I, I'm still masked up um, as well people in my family who have, you know, health frailty. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we, to your point, we need that human connection. We thrive on that human connection. Yeah. There's nothing more important to us than being important to somebody else. Um, 
and and technology can give us part of that. It can give us all of that. But the kind of conversation we're having today, you know, if if I hope there's some young boy or girl who wants to be part of the spectrum of, you know, Ron Brown, Larry Irving, Mickey Leland, and whoever influenced Mickey, because you know, take this forward. I don't know what the next technology is going to be, but I'm hoping there's some male or man or woman of color who's in another presidential administration saying, you know what, this is going to affect my community adversely if I don't fight for it, and it's worth giving up my job. If I have to fight for it, it's worth going around my boss to the president or the secretary, whoever, to get this done. Those are the things that I was taught and the things that I'm trying to teach young people. It's not about you. It's about all of us. And um, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you work hard and you're true to your, you know, to, to your point of reference, things will work out pretty well for you. I know they have for me. You're remarkable, and I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to share your story and your perspective with our audience today. And um, I, I look forward to continuing the conversation and, and supporting all that you do. Thank you so much, Larry. Thank you so much for the time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks again to Larry for sharing his thoughts and perspectives with us today. And thank you for giving him permission to speak and having the courage to listen with an open mind. As always, we will link to everything that Larry is doing on our show notes at ourvoicesmatterpodcast.com. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to our sponsor, BMW of West Houston. There's a special offer for members of the Our Voices Matter podcast community. Just click the link in the show notes, bmwwest.com.